1: We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end
2: of the journey this vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all we need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it the
0: thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going oh i'm not so sure
1: hello you're listening to bloomberg westminster your daily guide to british politics i'm roger hearing Now, Boris Johnson has confirmed restaurants and shops in England will open for the first time in four months next week, though meals can still only be served outside. That said, the ban on foreign travel may remain for longer. The Daily Telegraph's reporting today that the government's COVID passports may not be ready until autumn. The Prime Minister himself has also pointed to the surge in cases in Europe. We can't be complacent. We can see the waves of sickness afflicting other countries, and we've seen how this story goes. We still don't know how strong the vaccine shield will be when cases begin to rise, as I'm afraid that they will. But the travel industry has complained about the lack of clarity in the announcement, saying it's going to prevent travel even to low-risk destinations. At the same time, Labour is accusing the government of creating confusion by saying Covid passports are being considered, even though they won't be needed when pubs and and restaurants reopen. The Shadow Health Secretary, Jonathan Ashworth, says he's tired of the mixed messages.
2: I'm afraid ministers are really at sixes and sevens on this. I mean... Last night, Boris Johnson couldn't explain his own policy. A few days ago, Boris Johnson was saying people can't meet indoors if vaccinated because the vaccine isn't 100% protective.
1: That was the Shadow Health Secretary, Jonathan Ashworth. Well, joining us now is Bloomberg's UK government reporter, Joe Mays. Joe, thanks for being with us today. I mean, first of all, let's talk about the uh, passports, or I think the government calls them certificates. They don't like the term passports very much. Are we clear what they will be, when they will be, and how they will be?
2: Yeah, there's a little bit of confusion about, like you say, the exact nature of these passports or certification, as you call it. I mean, we know that the government would like people to be able to show either proof of vaccination, proof of a negative test, or proof of immunity through antibodies. So that's, that's what we think that will be what's required. And then they're saying it could be on the NHS app, or it could also be required in paper forms. There's some certainty around what it would look like in, in the physical form. And then in terms of, yes, the, where it will be used, that's still unclear. The government saying they want to do trials at mass events, like the FA Cup final, for example, big sporting events. Um, for now, they're saying we don't expect to use them in pubs and restaurants when things reopen in April and in May. So you know, that's like where we're currently looking, but it's still very much up, up for grabs, up, up, up in the air as to how widely these might be used, where they'll be used, whether you know like shops and pubs will be able to have discretion of whether to use them. That's all the kind of thing that we still need clarity on
1: and that of course has produced opposition we've heard it, not least I think from a slightly strange coalition of people on the left and the right certainly including a lot of Boris Johnson's backbenchers
2: Yes indeed and that's why Boris Johnson might be getting slightly worried about this as you say there is a coalition forming against it you have Labour now looking like they would vote against any kind of um, vaccination certification scheme, you have the Covid research group, the kind of Tory backbench caucus like sort of um, uh, yeah, Mark Harper and Steve Baker, people who've been anti anti restrictions broadly speaking, they're now taking COVID passports as the next target. So yes, the government might be quite worried if this went to a parliamentary vote that they could they could struggle to find the numbers.
1: And at the same time, you know, they've always said we're led by the data, not the dates. Well, the data and certainly the scientific analysis of that data suggests that in fact, even well, almost whenever we loosen up we're going to end up with a rise in cases and and, and some quite apocalyptic-seeming predictions of that coming from, from the government's scientific advisors on SAGE.
2: Yes. So the messaging seems to be that even though things are going well, we're very much not out of the woods. And even when vaccination rates are very high, there could still be quite a large prevalence of coronavirus, which is why we might need continuing social distancing restrictions. You know, this is the kind of the government laying the groundwork for this in that press conference yesterday, you know, hinting that we could see more of these measures continue. So it's going to be a constant political battle, I think, in terms of how seriously we have to impose restrictions, what kind of prevalence of the virus is is society willing to tolerate, is the government willing to tolerate. That's something that will have to play out in the coming months, I
1: think. And are we getting a clear sense also of where the politics is? We've talked about on the left and the right coalitions of of not liking essentially where the government is going with this in terms of restrictions, not easing up perhaps quick enough, but also uh, the passports. What about Keir Starmer in all this? It, it, there's been a lot of complaints about him, anniversary of his uh, position as Labour leader. Is he now managing to put clear blue water between himself on the government on, well, virtually anything?
2: I think you're right. That's where he has struggled. And indeed, there has been increasing negative media coverage around his leadership and i think he has struggled because you know he, a lot of the time i think he has been broadly in instinctively with the government in terms of the need for restrictions the need to control the pandemic and that has meant that he's often not really been acting in opposition so it's been difficult to find those issues where he can like draw a wedge with the conservatives it looks like on vaccine passports that they're, they're starting to try to do that but i think it's going to take uh you know some real political mouse and nuance from Starmer to carve out that clear opposition message. I don't think he's done it so far, and, and he might continue to struggle to, particularly when the vaccine route's going so well, which is giving a good headwind to Johnson, um, and, uh, sorry, a good, a good boost to Johnson. And then we've got this by-election, the Hartlepool, coming up, where, again, polls suggesting that the Conservatives would like to win that. So, really tough times for Starmer, I think. Yeah, how important
1: are the local elections, briefly, do you think, for, for the Labour Party?
2: I think it'll be key moment in terms of the narrative around the party and will will will, will the labour base be galvanised or would a poor outcome you know really set back Starmer's agenda will it set back his standing in the party that's quite likely yes so I think this is yeah very important local elections coming up for the Labour party
1: Joe, thank you. Our UK government reporter, Joe Mays. Well, I was talking about local elections there. One of the key amongst the local elections is the contest for who's going to be the next mayor of London. Now, Labour's candidate, Sadiq Khan, has now published his election manifesto. And, of course, he is also the current mayor of London. It includes plans to launch a review into legalising cannabis as part of his new approach to tackling drug-related crime. Khan says if he's re-elected in May, he would create an independent London Drugs Commission. Well, he's just been speaking to my colleagues on Bloomberg TV, so take a listen.
3: Boris Johnson has a habit of saying foolish things. You'll have to uh, forgive uh, our Prime Minister, not only for the way he looks, but for a lot of the things, uh, a lot of the times, the things he says, we're quite clear. Uh, the election on uh, May the 6th for the Mayor of London is an important one because uh, our global city has been struggling, like many other global cities, because of this uh, pandemic. There have been more than 300,000 Londoners who've lost their jobs, and there are currently just over a million Londoners who are furloughed. So I've launched my manifesto today, and it's a manifesto committed not just to protect the jobs we have, not just to support job creation, but to help those who've lost their jobs get back into work. And the way to do that is by having a green recovery. And what I've published today in my manifesto is a green uh, New Deal. And we can put aside the petty political knockabout stuff from Boris Johnson, and I'm keen to focus instead on a Green New Deal recovery for our city.
0: OK, you're speaking to a very quiet city of London. Are you expecting bankers and Londoners to return back to work? And how quickly could that happen?
3: Yeah, very good question, Francine. I'm here in Bloomberg, actually, in the heart of our city. And there aren't many people about when I came to Bloomberg, I cycled uh, in. Uh, Bloomberg itself has taken huge, uh, taken huge strides to make sure they... Uh, make their building safe as a covid safe building it's fantastic you come here you're tested uh, social distance is taking place and we're encouraging other employers to give uh, their workers that confidence to return to work you'll be aware many global cities their their city center ecosystem relies upon footfall the the coffees the bars the restaurants the the tailors the dry cleaners we've got to recognize though that understandably people are a bit nervous returning to the city but also people have been as productive at home uh, because of the advances in technology so we've got to make sure that the experience of returning to the city is a safe one what i've done over the next few weeks is i'll be investing in making sure we have attractions in the heart of our city to encourage people to suck it and see to see how it works and then i'm hoping over the course of the next few weeks and months people will start returning back to the city in particular we're keen to encourage not just tourists uh, but Londoners and others, uh, including investors, to return back to the heart of our city. But it's important at all times we're uh, vigilant and never complacent because this virus is still with us.
0: So it, what does that mean for you know, vaccine passports? Should they come quicker so that um, tourists can return safely back to London? Or is the fall, the autumn, the quickest we could have them?
3: Well, at the moment, we're rolling out vaccines as fast as we can. The criteria we're using mainly is one of age. The older you are, the sooner you receive the vaccine or if you're clinically extremely vulnerable. The good news is everyone now above the age of 50 uh, should have received the vaccine. It's now being rolled out to those below the age of uh, 50. London's population is roughly speaking 9 million plus. Uh, 3.5 million Londoners have already received the vaccine. But it will take some time for everyone to receive the vaccine. So discussions about a vaccine passport are a bit premature. But it's important the work is done now to see whether it's workable. In the meantime, there are things that can be done. For example, regular testing is a good way to see if somebody's got the virus. We know, I'm afraid, many people who have the virus show no symptoms. One out of three people show no symptoms. So regular testing is important. And the good news is our schools have reopened and we've made sure each parent has sufficient test to test their child twice a week and the good news is we're not seeing a big increase in the virus now like we were last year when there wasn't regular testing.
1: And that was the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, and of course Labour's candidate to be elected as Mayor Ian May, speaking to Bloomberg's Francine Lacqua. Now I should add there is a full list of candidates uh, for Mayor of London at uh, www.londonelects.org.uk. Www. Dot londonelects.org.uk and you can find them all there.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Forum.com.
1: Let's have a quick look now at what else is making news in the world of politics. Government advisers are warning that the final step in the government's plan to reduce COVID-19 restrictions could lead to a surge in infections and deaths. A report from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine says easing most limits on social contact might lead to a situation at least as severe as the country's post-holiday surge in January. Now, it also found that next week's planning easing, planned easing is likely to lead to a small surge of COVID-19 cases and deaths though it wouldn't threaten, it says, to overwhelm health services. Now, sick pay. Unions have criticised a 50 pence per week increase in statutory sick pay as miserly. The SSP increases from £95.85 to £96.35 today, but the TUC and Unite both say it's too little to live on. A government spokesman said there was a comprehensive package in place to support those who need to self-isolate. He also said many employers pay more than the minimum level of statutory sick pay. Now, according to the OECD, the UK has one of the lowest statutory sick pay rates of any developed country. And Keir Starmer has apologised for the hurt caused over his visit to a church, which has been criticised for its attitudes towards homosexuality. The Labour leader posted a now deleted video describing Jesus' house in North London as a, quote, wonderful example of a church serving its community during the pandemic. But the church's pastor has previously spoken against same-sex marriage and equality legislation. Keir Starmer now says he was not aware of the church's views before his visit. Now one of the key areas hit in the pandemic has been the music industry. The opportunities to perform, of course, been very limited and there are a large number of performers left without an effective income. At the same time, Brexit has also thrown up some major problems for those who want to tour in Europe. Well, let's talk about all this with UK Music's chief executive, Jamie Joku Goodwin, who joins us now. Jamie, welcome to the program and thanks for being with us. Just tell me first, What would help your industry most in terms of ending restrictions in the coming months?
4: Well, I think, first of all, we recognise there's a pandemic going on. Uh, We want to be looking at ways we can be getting events happening again as safely as possible. Um, Obviously, as viable as possible, but it's really important that we do these things in a really safe way. So there's lots of work that's been going on across the industry to reduce the risk of transmission, find ways to be able to be holding events as safely as possible. Um, so, we've been looking at how we can be engaging in things like testing. Um, governments are currently doing a review of COVID status certification. So, for example, um, looking at the idea that if you go to a large event or mass event, you can get these events happening again, but subject to people either having been vaccinated or having a negative test before going. So, looking at all sorts of ways to ensure that events can happen safely, because that has to be the priority in a pandemic, but also making sure they can be happening viably. Um, so, having certainty for us as an industry, we plan months ahead. Um, large events don't just spirit themselves up in the. Um, uh, in a few days, um, they take months of planning. Um, so making sure that we've got some sort of certainty about what the months ahead looked like. And one of the key things in that respect is actually the issue of insurance, which uh, when you're talking in the music industry, the insurance on the sound like one of the sexiest and most exciting things to be talking about, but it's actually really important. Uh, we can't get insurance for events at the moment. Uh, insurers won't insure uh, events against cancellation, which means lots of organisers and event promoters and um, event organisers are essentially being asked to plan events, expose themselves to potentially millions of pounds of losses if those events were to be cancelled in three months' time because of the mm. pandemic potentially worsening. Um, so there's real issues in the insurance market. Uh, government introduced an insurance scheme for the film TV sector last year, which has been hugely successful, has meant productions can go ahead, protected jobs. And we need the same sort of thing in the music industry now.
1: OK, well, I mean, let's talk about that because that is interesting, the insurance requirements, because I guess... If uh, there were these COVID passport certificates, whatever you want to call them, the government has been talking about, that might provide a kind of guarantee, I suppose, that the insurers might think was a good thing and and that would enable those kind of events to go ahead. So presumably you'd be in favour of that.
4: So we're approaching this through the prism of how can we get events happening again. Um, And I think no no one wants to be um, adding unnecessary burdens or new bureaucracy for the sake of it. But if COVID status certification, or I mean, people call them vaccine passports, I don't think people are suggesting passports just for vaccines. The idea, I think, as I see it, is vaccination, antibody test, or a negative test, and so not just vaccine, but some way to essentially prove or ensure that people that are attending a event aren't infectious, aren't a risk to other people. Um, that seems to be a good idea to me. Um, and it makes sense to me, especially if it is the mechanism by which you can be getting these events to be happening again. And also, as you say, if, if it were to give insurers on the private insurance market confidence to start insuring events again, then fantastic. But I think a lot of the insurers we speak to, um, they don't seem to think that. Well, they don't think the insurance market is going to return to where it was until um, 2022, 2023. Even um, you see these sort of things happening after natural disasters. You see it happening after floods or terrorism. Um, the insurance market is naturally resistant and reluctant to be issuing events um, but the government's got a roadmap that it says is irreversible they say that events will absolutely be happening from June 21st onwards so if they're confident in their roadmap we think that's a very compelling case for them to be on the right to insurance for events that they say they won't have to cancel.
1: Okay now just walk us through what's been happening in your industry because you represent as I said at the beginning recording publishing and live performance sectors How have they been affected during the pandemic? Who's been worst hit? I mean, I I suppose in some ways it's pretty obvious, but just walk us through.
4: Yeah, well, everyone is a simple answer. Um, As an industry, we are an ecosystem. So we've got lots of different bits, lots of different areas, the recorded sector, the live sector, artists, managers, performers, uh, kind of engineers. The one thing that brings everything together often um, is how much, is how dependent everyone is on live activity. Um, so, if you're a songwriter or a composer, um live events is one of the things you're often commissioned to be writing things for um when that is down uh, as it has been um your commission sometimes starts to dry up if you're a performer, you need to be performing at live events when that stops, a lot of your income stops um, and even if it's in other bits of the sector, whether it's be collection societies and royalties from uh from things being performed, you're seeing a hit there. so what's happened in the live sector in the past year has been devastating across the industry, and I think every bit of every bit of the industry has been um has felt the impact and has been impacted by it. We are a £5.8 billion industry. Um, Every year we contribute £5.8 billion to the economy. We support 200,000 jobs, support £2.9 billion of exports. It's a key national asset for the UK. Um, It's a really important industry and it's been flawed by this pandemic. Um, But of course, it's also one of those industries, one of those sectors that when it comes to recovering from the pandemic, should be the fourth one. Um, it does have the potential and the opportunity to play not just a really important economic role, but a really important social role. Um, one of the things yeah. people seem to have missed most uh, over the course of this pandemic has been live events. It has been yeah. the social contact, the event, which has been um, deterred over the past year because of the pandemic. So it does have that key role to play in the post-pandemic
1: recovery we see. And I mean, obviously, some parts of the economy have been well helped by the government, uh, particularly, obviously, the furlough schemes and the various support schemes for self-employed people as well. Have your uh, the people you represent, I mean, many of them, of course, will not be in salaried positions, been able to take up with that, to, 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 to use that system?
4: So one of the striking things about the music industry is that 72% of people that work in it are self-employed. Um, so furlough actually hasn't been the main source of support for it. It's actually been self-employment income support. Um, which has been much more important than furlough. But even then, part of the nature about musicians is that they're not typically they're not typical self-employed people. Um, uh, often they have become newly self-employed. They jump from one scheme to another bit of work. They have different short-term employers. And one of the things it's meant is that lots of people in the industry haven't actually even been able to access the economic support that has been offer on offer. So every kind of regularly, I get letters and emails, and messages from people who work in the industry. Pre-pandemic had a kind of very successful, glittering career, um, but actually they've now been uh, unable to access some of the economic support, and that's been going on for the better part of a year since things stopped last March. So it's been incredibly difficult for the people working in the industry. But I think many of them, the way they see it, is they don't actually, they don't necessarily want to be um, sort of supported. Even if they can't get the economic support, they don't want to be supported not to be working. The priority get everyone is to get back to a situation whereby our industry can be operating again, we can be having events, people can be employed doing those events, and they can be supported by activity yeah. um, rather than that activity not happening.
1: Jamie, let me ask you about something else. we talked about the pandemic throughout this, but there is another thing that I know is a problem for your industry and to do with touring uh, in Europe, and that's Brexit. Uh, there have been a lot of questions asked in Parliament about this, the difficulties of uh, doing that in ways that didn't used to be the case. Just take us through what's happening and and the problems that it throws up
4: So as of now if you want to be working or performing in uh, In Europe we've gone from a situation where by there because one standardized set of rules for working in Europe to 27 different ones and Particularly for musicians many of these present big problems so there are many countries that are now going to require work permits or visas uh, if you're working there that has a big impact on touring musicians because often musicians they're not there for a long time they're not there to work long term they're often there to perform in a concert uh for, for a day for a few hours then move on to the next place some countries spain is one of the big problems spain portugal um, bulgaria croatia now require potentially costly work permits even if you're just staying there for a single day now that makes those sorts of tours unviable um, means it's much more difficult for musicians to actually be able to tour internationally um, so you've got big issues on the visas and work permits fund, but also challenges on this thing called cabotage, which is about the movement of goods between um, between different different countries. As it stands, trucks are now allowed to do a maximum of three stops uh, before returning to the UK if they're moving goods through Europe. Now, that doesn't have so much of an impact on hauliers that are just kind of taking something uh, to a European country to sell and then bring it back. If you're a concert haulier, if you're trying to take a tour on tour, if you're now making it, if it's now illegal for you to do more than three stops, um, that renders a tour impossible. Um, so there's a number of challenges on the on the on the on the European front that we're battling with at the same time as COVID now.
1: Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB digital radio in London.